Hi there, and welcome to Voices from the Institute for Human Rights and Business, also known as IHRB. I am Deborah Sago, and in this podcast, you will hear from people working to make respect for human rights part of everyday business. In this episode, you are going to hear about something called the built environment, how that affects you and what that means for human rights and business. Coming up, you will hear from Kenny Adirogba from Spaces for Change, a non-profit organization based in Lagos, Nigeria. But first, what is the built environment and why is it important to human rights? My colleague Annabelle Short from IHRB's Built Environment program can tell you. So, Annabelle, what exactly do we mean by the term built environment? So by built environment, we mean the places where we live, where we interact with each other, where we work, essentially the places where we spend our lives. When we think of it as a sector, we think of buildings, we think of infrastructure such as water, transit, energy, everything that we really need to live the lives that we lead. Thank you for that very clear description. I want to know what impact does the built environment have on human rights? It's almost hard to think of a human right that is not affected by the built environment. There are many economic, social, cultural rights, for example. So if you think about the right to physical and mental health, if you think about the right to housing, those are really directly impacted by the places where we live and the places where we work. Then there are the cross-cutting rights, such as non-discrimination, such as the right to meaningful participation and having a say over decisions that affect your lives. Those are fundamentally important in terms of how the built environment is designed and used and advanced. There's also the right to privacy, which is becoming increasingly important, given the growing rise of technology in the built environment. Finally, I'd also lift up the rights of people who are building the built environment. So construction workers, whether they're working on construction sites or if they're working through material supply chains. Now, IHRB has been working on the built environment for the past two to three years. Why is IHRB focused on this area and what are we hoping to achieve? Great question. So one reason, a key reason, is the huge impact that it has on human rights. Also because many of the industries that are involved in the built environment, whether it's the finance that flows into it, the designers and architects, the engineers and construction companies, have in many ways faced less scrutiny and are less further along in their human rights journey than some other sectors that we might think of. I think there's been much more attention on other sectors such as the garment industry, extractive industries, technology industry, for example. So one of the key things we're doing is really clarifying the ways in which those industries have multiple impacts on human rights and what are their roles and responsibilities, ensuring that they both don't harm human rights through their decision-making but also to maximize the realization of rights. And really from the very earliest stages of projects and decision-making, we have a framework called the Dignity by Design Framework, which aims to illustrate what is a human rights approach from the very earliest stages of a a project life cycle and, and how can you ensure that you're avoiding harm and also maximizing opportunities throughout the whole project life cycle. Final thing is to lift up that we're really working on two levels. One is at the physical built project level, but also very much at the policy level. So trying to shape the ways in which policy defines the built environment and can shape it either in advance of human rights or can, as it often does, have human rights abuses really baked into the way that decisions are made. So 
In your conversation with Kenny Adirabah from Spaces for Change, why did you feel it important that we hear about the work that they do? So at the center of our work on the built environment are rights holders, are the people who live and work within the built environment and who are actively trying to improve it yeah, for the lives of communities and for local residents. And that's really what Spaces for Change, as their name implies, is doing in the context of Lagos. It's also important, I think, to contextualize the work within the context of Lagos. So it's a very rapidly growing, huge city. It's a coastal city. Um, it's confronting a lot of the major challenges that cities face today. And organizations such as Spaces for Change are really critical in terms of opening up pathways that ensure the ways those cities develop are as good as possible for the people who live in them. Okay, let's hear from Kenny, who first explained how the name Spaces for Change came about. I think it started off as a desire of the executive director of Spaces for Change, Victoria Ibezim Ohaiwi, to create a platform that will cultivate the interest of citizens, particularly youth and women in governance and public participation. So we saw what started as a Facebook group transformed into a nonprofit organization working to infuse human rights into the social and economic governance process in Nigeria. In terms of how our neighbors um, capture what the organization is doing, I guess in terms of our track record and our success, we can see how Spaces for Change has demonstrated that there's always room for positive synergy between government and the governor. So, and, and this synergy can translate to transformative change. So I think that's how our work have captured, our name of captured what we do. Got it, absolutely. Working in those spaces between those governing and the governed, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And as you know, at Institute for Human Rights and Business, we have a focus program on the built environment. So thinking everything from urban planning, buildings themselves and the infrastructure that connects them. What are some of the strategies that you use to shape the built environment in Lagos and particularly to engage citizens, so youth, women, local community members in the decision-making processes that shape the places they live? So we know at Spaces for Change, in fact, the best form of advocacy is actually the one that outlives you. That is why we are not just interested in advocating for the vulnerable and the marginalized group. We also seek to empower these communities through capacity building to persuade governments in order to respect, to protect, and to fulfill their housing rights. So this actually led us to create a group called the Community Alliance Against Displacement, which I coordinate. So the group consists of leaders of marginalized and displaced communities in Lagos, and they're working together to integrate communities' rights, their priorities and expectations in urban governance. So in terms of like what we have done, I can give like examples of the work we have done, particularly around youth. In Lagos, yeah, we have seen that some of the narrative that the government used to justify forced eviction and mass displacement is that most of these settlements where slum or informal communities are being situated huh, are always um, occupied by thugs. They are always occupied by nuisance and used for criminal activities. So in order to debunk this narrative that has constantly used to seek to criminalize slum dwellers and uh, inhabitants of informal communities, 
We taught youth from different communities that are required how to use transmedia tools and programs with participatory action research approach to change and shift the narrative about slum and slum dwellers. So basically, we through digital tools, we were able to teach the youth how to allow the world to see where they live, where they reside, see themselves through their own lenses so that it can change that narrative that the government have seek and use to criminalize those people. It can change that narrative and they can also be inclusive in urban governance and economic opportunities. And when you're engaging youth to change that narrative, which are the audiences that you're trying to reach and how do you see that narrative gradually shifting in people's minds outside of those communities? Our stakeholders are not limited to one. We have diverse stakeholders. One of the important stakeholders we have are the government. One of the people that we want to see that um, change of narrative is particularly the government. Like I mentioned earlier, they use most of these narratives to justify displacement and gentrification in most of these communities. So we through our advocacy and working with the youth and empowering the youth, I think we've gotten to that space whereby government don't use that narrative anymore. I think they are looking for new excuses to use to um, displace those people. So they are beginning to see youth as, um, particularly from these communities, as not just criminals, but they are seeing them as an important part of the community. They're seeing them as an important part of Lagos. They are seeing them as important part of Nigeria as a whole. They are beginning to see them as leaders. The fact that you reside in communities like this does not disqualify you or disenfranchise you from being a leader or taking political positions. So we have seen most of our youth engage in political space. We have seen most of our youth in this community take up be in conversations whereby things are being decided that would affect their community. They're no longer outside looking inside, but they're now part of the decision makers talking about things that will affect their communities. So that is how we have seen our programs have changed the mindset of the public and particularly this, the governments and different stakeholders. That completely links back to what you were saying about the whole concept and name of Spaces for Change. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're actively making that. You've touched on displacement and forced evictions as a major challenge. What are any, any other big challenges that Lagos residents are facing in their built environment now, but also looking ahead, let's say 10 years from now and into the future? What are the big challenges that residents of Lagos are facing? We know just like other developing countries that Nigeria is also struggling with um, growing urban population. The housing deficit is more acute in Lagos and due to home ownership and renting accommodation becoming more and more expensive and out of the reach of moderate and low income earners, people are forced to create human settlements and these human sentiments are often targets of urban renewal and gentrification, like I mentioned earlier, with no guarantee of compensation and um, resettlement. So I think aside from this being a big problem that we're still working to actively address, I think another problem in the housing and building sector in the near and not so distant future, I think will be the need to respond to climate change to cope with the ongoing effects to reduce the carbon emission in the built environment. 
In recent news, the Director General of the Nigeria Hydrological Service Agency projected that Lagos will be part of the 10 cities that will be submerged by 2050. So this is a projection that has been validated by other independent reports like the Climate Center. It's a scientific organization based in New Jersey, USA, and the Nigerian Conservative Foundation, yes. So what their report is showing is that 30 million people currently living in areas that are flooded at least often a year will be submerged by the increase on sea level rising that we're seeing by 2050. So if this situation, if it is not properly mitigated and effectively addressed, we might be seeing a widespread of displacement within the next 30 years that might lead to unprecedented housing catastrophe. So I think it's something that the government of Lagos uh, needs to pay more attention to how the climate change is affecting the built environment. And elaborating on that a bit in terms of the current planning and actions on climate mitigation and resilience, do those take vulnerable residents into account? In what ways are you seeing those either deepening existing inequality and human rights issues or conversely, what needs to change in terms of those processes to be taking more of a rights-based approach to climate action? I think legal states are already taking the initiative. The thing is that they just need to pay more attention to it. Why I say Lagos State is taking the initiative is because they recently partnered with the Nigerian Energy Support Program. It's a revision, current revision on the national building code. Now it's now the Building Energy Efficiency Design Guideline. So what this is, is expected to be an handbook for all professionals in the built environment, from the architects to the engineers to the construction companies, to use this guideline that has been created to create houses that are sustainable and that will be resilient to climate change. In everything that will be guiding the built environment, we're also going to train builders, because one thing in Nigeria in Lagos is that we've noticed that there's a lot of knowledge gap. Most people don't know, is it that they don't even know the existing um, mm. policies and laws? And uh, most people don't even know the terms of implementation. So we are going to bridge that gap. Today, Lagos State is um, launching its new development plan that is going to last from 2022 to 2052. I think that we're already embracing the idea of mixed income housing in the model and designs of a housing structure going forward. And what this mixed income housing will do with is not only going to break all social segregation, it's also going to create affordable and um, accessible housing for low-income earners. Good. So good, good to hear that strong plans are in place. <laughs> no. Yeah, uh, Implementation will be key. And thinking about one of the key aspects of implementation or one of the key actors and sectors that influences the built environment, what would you like to see less of and more of from finance in the built environment? And maybe break that down thinking about public finance flows, but also private finance in Lagos. Okay, let me start with one of the things I'd like to see more I think um, in terms of finance, uh, is um, government creating um, financial mechanism and incentive 
that would encourage companies, developers, architects to invest in not just mixed income housing, but inclusive and um, environmental sustainable housing. I'm also looking at what I would like to see less of is investing in houses that are out of the reach of low vulnerable groups. So if governments can um, provide all this mechanism and incentives such as land subsidization, tax incentive for private, particularly private, because we've seen how the private firm and construction companies have stepped in to help the housing deficit. But the problem is that most of these houses that are being built are out of the reach of low-income earners and uh, marginalized groups. So finally, your work is strongly grounded in human rights. What are the ways that you see the human rights framework, the international human rights framework and human rights law as powering the work that you do? What's the value that a human rights framework brings to your work? I think it has actively shaped our advocacy and our programs in terms of um, activities. So advocating for prevention of false addiction and also the inclusion of marginalized groups this work have actually framed our work actively to look at how um, relevant stakeholders can not only, it's not only about um, ratifying this law, but also domesticating it and implementing it. And it's not only about them doing policies, but also how can these policies, how can it translate to transformative change, particularly for this group that are often left behind. Absolutely. And from your own personal perspective, clearly these are challenging issues that you're working on on a day-to-day basis. What is it that motivates you? Like, what, what is it that inspires you personally about the work that you're doing with Spaces for Change? I think one of the things that inspire me is, I think the need to see everyone is being carried along, that no one is left behind, that in the distant future, the near and not so distant future, we would not be having conversation around marginalization again. Things like inequality, things like exclusion will be done away with. We will see governments working with um, communities, not just because of the rhetorics of working with communities, we're actually working with communities because they actually want to see a change because they are their mega city that they want to build is actually inclusive. I think that is what I want to say in the long run. We are all entitled to enjoy the benefits of a government. No one should be left behind. I think that's what motivates me. Huge thanks to my colleague Annabelle Schultz and her guest Kenny Adirogba. It is fascinating to hear about the impact that allowing people to share their stories can have when it comes to breaking down stereotypes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Voices, which is brought to you by the Institute for Human Rights and Business, also known as IHRB. You will hear from us again in about a month's time, but in the meantime, do share and follow this podcast. That way, you will never miss an episode. If you would like to find out more about IHRB's work on the built environment, then head to dignitybydesign.org. <laughs>